0: Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine an event or an aspect in the Royal Australian Navy's history. The Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales is supported in this series by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Hello, I'm Commander Alastair Cooper, Deputy Director of the Sea Power Centre Australia. This episode is the second of two devoted to one of the most heroic groups ever to serve in Australia, uh, uh, serve Australia in war, the Coast Watchers of World War II. To discuss their story, I'm joined by Mr. Jim Burroughs, who's the last surviving radio operator from the Coast Watcher organisation. Jim, we're really glad to have you with us. Thank you. By Vice Admiral Peter Jones, retired, who wrote the book, Australia's Argonauts, which is part in part a discussion of the lives of Eric Felt, who ran the Coast Watcher Network, Rupert Long, the Director of Naval Intelligence, and Hugh McKenzie, a Coast Watcher. Peter, thank you for joining us. And by Dr Betty Lee, a great niece of Eric Felt, who is writing a biography of her famous relation. Thank you for joining us. And finally, Uh, by Mr John Perryman, the Royal Australian Navy's Director of Naval History and Strategy. John, thank you also. Peter Jones, if I can turn to you first, perhaps the Coast Watchers' finest hour was their role in the Solomon Islands campaign. Can you outline the strategic situation and the role that the Coast
1: Watchers played? Uh, Certainly. So as part of the the same Japanese operation to lodge an invasion force at Port Moresby, which um, uh, Jim talked about in the previous episode, a smaller Japanese force did succeed in landing in Tulagi in the Solomons. This lodgement combined with an an airfield that the Japanese then started to construct on nearby Guadalcanal. Threaten the sea lanes between Australia and America, as well as to New Guinea. The US decided to conduct an amphibious operation to take Tulagi and Guadalcanal. Um, and so, as was explained in the last episode, Eric Felt had established a coast Watch network in the Solomons, and this proved invaluable in a couple of ways. First and quite unexpectedly, as a means of reporting Japanese aircraft proceeding south from the Rabaul area, to attack allied ships off Tulagi and Guadalcanal. So you had successive coast watchers on the different islands as the aircraft tracked south. They would report the aircraft as they went um, past them. And this enabled the ships off the, um, the two amphibious uh, landings to be ready. And critically, US aircraft from the US aircraft carriers offshore to launch and be at a higher altitude to engage the Japanese aircraft when they arrived over the amphibious area. And this helped defeat many raids. The second contribution was for the Coast Watchers to rescue downed aircraft, uh, airmen, and, um, and also shipwrecked sailors. And during the campaign, over 100 aviators and 180 sailors were saved. And this included the future President John F. Kennedy. And finally, and once again, unexpectedly, the Coast Watchers led local Solomon Islanders in attacks on Japanese forces. Um, And the Solomon Islanders had been enraged by the Japanese brutality shown against um, their kinsmen um, and and proved themselves to be willing and skilled fighters. Thank you.
0: John Perryman, one of the coast watchers in the Solomons was the remarkable woman, Mrs. Ruby Boy. Can you tell us her story?
2: She was remarkable indeed. Uh, Ruby Boy and her husband, Sco, uh, were working uh, on the Santa Cruz Island at a place called Banacoro. And there was the Cowrie timber mill. So they, they were there before the war and they had a radio operator in place uh, with a teleradio. So they were ideally suited to, you know, uh, take on this role. Now, when war was declared in 1939, the assigned radio operator, he had a desire to go and do his bit, so he left to join the Royal Australian Air Force, and it was he that suggested that Ruby, at age 50, and, and with no prior experience in any of this, should be able to take over the teleradio. Uh, and she proved herself to be a uh, completely competent in every way. Not only did she learn how to use the equipment, she taught herself Morse code and she began uh, sending her intelligence and messages, sometimes up to four times a day, reporting the Japanese movements around the Solomons. So she had a big part to play in that. She also had played a part in uh, the, the Battle of the Coral Sea, where she provided intelligence there. Now, can you imagine, um, she made a bit of a nuisance of herself. Uh, The Japanese are monitoring the airwaves, they're listening out, they're quite accustomed to hearing, uh, you know, radio reports from the men, but there's this woman uh, amidst all of this chatter, if you like, uh, who they quickly decide they need to do something about. So you can imagine how Ruby must have felt when, um, you know, calling Mrs Boy on Vanakoro, is received on her set Uh, and a measure of the person she was is uh, she's quoted as saying I felt just a little bit queer when I heard the voice but somehow I felt he was bragging. Uh, the mere fact that I was annoying them sufficiently to have them warm me off was somewhat gratifying. And that was, that was this remarkable woman. Um, she remained uh, on the island. Uh, they sent forces, naval forces down to Santa Cruz to try and land, but they didn't have the local knowledge to penetrate the surrounding reefs. So she lived to fight another day there. Um, and then, of course, as the war progressed and the islands were liberated, um, you know, conditions became somewhat better. But she was one of these, uh, remarkable people who, uh, felt so concerned. Eric felt so concerned was he about, you know, her longevity that they actually parachuted a, uh, uh uniform to her. They made her an honorary third officer in the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service in a a fairly tenuous hope that were she captured, she may be afforded some sort of legitimacy. For her efforts, uh, she received the British Empire Medal and she received a a personal call when uh, Admiral Halsey dropped in by Catalina. So uh, a remarkable
0: woman in every sense. Thank you. Peter, Lieutenant Commander Hugh McKenzie, who was at Rabaul, was posted to the Marine headquarters on Guadalcanal Can you tell us about his role and how the activities of the Coast Watchers changed as a result?
1: Yes, so um, Eric Felt and Rupert Long quickly realised the importance of the Solomons campaign and the importance of having someone who could bring together and coordinate the Coast Watcher activity um, on Guadalcanal, noting that the the uh, Marines had their headquarters there. Um, and also to ensure that the Marines could help logistically support the, um, the Coast Watchers so they can continue to do their work. Um, the logical choice for uh, for such a, um, um, a, a, at times, difficult uh, job, as it turned out, was Hugh McKenzie, um, someone who had experience as a Coast Watcher and they knew very well. And so Eric came in and, and worked in the headquarters to, to do those two things. Um, there was uh, some difficulties for him um, and a lot around personalities within the headquarters, which um, uh, we probably don't need to go into here, but he did a, a great job in just trying to Coordinate what the missions were for the Coast Watchers, ensuring that the um, that they got adequate supplies. When the um, the Marines were replaced by the Army, General Alexander Patch um, took com- command. He uh, could see that there had been issues, and so he directed that Hugh McKenzie report direct to him, and he made it very clear to his staff and know in certain terms that any request from Hugh for logistic support and supplies to the Coast Watchers be given as a matter of priority. Thank you. Eddie, uh,
0: Eric Felt was able to visit first Nemea um, uh, and then Guadalcanal, and he met, I think, Admiral Halsey. In Newmere. Can you tell us about that tour? Yes, and
3: yes, certainly. In in March nineteen forty-three he went on this visit and he did meet Admiral Bull Halsey in Numea and thanked him for the who thanked him for the excellent work that the Coast Watchers were doing. And then Eric went on to visit Hugh Mackenzie and see the setup at Guadacanal and he found it was all functioning well. Um, but this was in stark contrast to the situation the Coast Watchers had been going through in nineteen forty two. Anyway, um, on the morning of the 20th of March 1943, he climbed aboard a small seaplane in Guadalcanal, bound for Malaita. When they were getting close, Eric got a severe chest pain. Um, The pilot landed but then turned round and flew back to Tulagi seaplane base. From there, Eric was taken by a motor ferry to the Naval Hospital on Tulagi, where the doctor diagnosed a heart attack. And all things considered, it was not surprising that the stress and workload that Eric had been under um, resulted in him having a heart attack. Because 1942, it was a whole new situation. And there'd never been a coast-watching system like the one that began in earnest in 1942. And he'd been out of the military for 17 years and only back in for a couple of years. And he was really commanding by the seat of his pants really. Um, and, and it was the year where Australia was in the gravest danger and he was well aware of that and he was well aware how important the Coast Watchers were. And I think the thing that was most telling on him was that he had to ask people to stay behind and or in enemy infested territory and jungle ridden, disease ridden jungles and, and, and then he had to um, send men new men into the field too. And there, there were many people he knew personally and many were his friends. Um, and, and it must have been quite, um, I think, upsetting to see the Coast Watchers when they came out in the sorry state that they were in after the service that they'd been, been doing. And, and then to learn of the deaths of the others, such as, as Bill Kyle, his best friend. And then his, the best organised um, action that they'd had was in November, December 1942, and it was been almost a complete failure, and with 14, with was, was four out of the 16 um, having been killed and the remainder driven out or in danger. And this happened when the Allies, they planned to recapture New Guinea with Coast Watch's support, but it backfired because the Japanese invaded before we got to do it. And so then again, the Coast Watchers were behind enemy territory. Anyway, um, he had pre- eric previously had suffered from scrub typhus, which had been nearly fatal. So we we're very fortunate that he did survive that and lived on to be head of the Coast Watchers. Um, it might have weakened his condition a bit um, and smoking wouldn't have helped his coronary arteries. <laughs> but it, it, I think it would have taken an extraordinarily strong man not to be deeply affected by what had happened during 1942 and what had happened to his Coast Watchers. Anyway, General MacArthur organised for him to be sent to Brisbane as soon as his health allowed um, air travel and. Um, About a month later, he was, he was flying to Brisbane with a naval doctor in attendance. And Commander McManus took over as head of the Coast Watchers. The Navy promoted uh, McManus to acting commander, and they demoted Eric to lieutenant commander. Mm. It was a blow. It was a blow for him, but he he took it on the chin. He, He wrote in his book, it seemed harsh, but what the hell, Ferdinand was delivering the goods and that was all that mattered. Um, and he lived quite like life for another 25 years, which suggests that probably it was the stress and the strain that related in his heart attack. But whatever the reason, I think we were lucky to have him at the helm of the Coast Watchers and also that he lived to write their story.
0: Which we might cover in a bit. Yes. <laughs> Eddie, thank you. That's, again, quite remarkable. Um, Jim, I think you might have met Lieutenant Commander, Acting Commander James McManus. Um, can you tell me what he was like?
4: Yes, Alex. Alistair. Um, actually, Betty's uh, mentioned uh, uh, a bit about him in the respect that he took over as supervising intelligence officer when uh, Eric uh, had his heart attack. Um, but I, um, I found him uh, with some awe. He was a big boss. And uh, had a uh, fairly intensive uh, interview with him at Hindhoff House in uh, Queen Street, um, uh, Brisbane, where they were the where they headquarters. I never met Eric, uh, unfortunately, but um, but Morris, uh, Yeah, he was uh, as I say very dare He's uh, and he was an Irishman, and uh, he checked me out on Morse code. Um, uh most code um you yeah, know was dot net dash dot net dash, da the So I still know my Morse code, except that's the alphabet but I won't go through it all. It's (laughs) amazing how it sticks and um... You've got a communicator
0: alongside you who will probably be joining.
4: Yeah. It's also interesting that the (laughs) um, um, I mean a dot is just a dot and a dash is just a dash. but. Uh, I found that when we were dealing with the AWA civvies in in Moresby, um, I could tell who was on the other end and likewise they could tell... Me, I mean, one of them was, you know, quick and party. I was do do it, whatever. It's just like a signature. It was amazing, and it's only a dot and a dash. Um, uh, I appreciated then uh, uh, with McManus uh, getting back to McManus at the end of the war in November. I received a very nice personal uh, commendation about how. Uh, I'll be honest how good I was as a radio <laughs> operator volunteer and volunteer and all that and um, but he got one thing wrong uh, he said uh, how how uh, how I was good tech technically. do you know in the six weeks that we learned Morse code, not one word, not one hour, not one minute did we learn? anything about the technical side. Mm -hmm. Uh, One day uh, up in the islands in Japanese territory, damn wireless wouldn't work. I thought, what the hell do I do? And I pulled it out of its sheath, turned it upside down. I thought, all these valves and God knows what condensers. And um, it was a sunny day. I turned the, uh, the radio on, turned upside down hoping something happened with the radio on. And um, you wouldn't believe it, I had a brown paper lunch bag of spare parts. So I picked out the red and the green and the yellow and the red and shorted them across, and got a signal. To, that, to this day, I don't know how I put it together. I'm sure I didn't use my teeth, I didn't have any soldering iron or didn't have any pliers, but I've got the damn thing working. And, uh, and without that, we would have been mute. Uh, we would have had to uh, somehow uh, organise through another party somehow to get another radio dropped. But uh, uh, I appreciated the commendation uh, by Eric, uh, by uh, McManus, um, and I just wanted to correct him on that, but I didn't bother. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Betty. The Coast Watchers also played a role in the operations along the north coast of New Guinea, um, in addition to the Solomons. Can you explain a bit about that?
3: Yes, yes, Astrid. It, it seems to me little recognition has been given for the important part the Coast Watchers played um, in the eventual success of the Allies at the Battles of the Beachheads in November 42 to January 43. The beachheads of Buna Gona and San andrea became the battlegrounds after the Allies fought the um, retreating Japanese across the Kokoda Trail. Almost the double number of soldiers died at the beach as, as at Kokoda.
4: Terrible waste of of mm-hmm. lives. Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, but the Allies had optimistically thought that success would be achieved quickly. But the Japanese kept sending supplies and troops to reinforce the battle area. Um, Coast watcher Linda Noakes was stationed near the mouth of the Mambare River, 40 miles northwest of Buna. The Japanese were sending supplies from, to Buna from Sa- Salamawa by barge at night and hiding them during the day. So if the coast watchers could find out where they were hiding, that would be very useful. Um, and also in order to sup- to improve their supply line to Buna, the Japanese planned to establish a bridgehead at the mouth of the Mambare, and if that was successful, it had the added danger that enemy troops could be taken up the Mambara in barges and swing south and attack the Australian flank. Anyway, one day Lyndon heard our planes um, strafing the enemy barges and he headed through the jungle to investigate. Uh, the pilots had done considerable damage to the barges, but he made the greater discovery that they had indeed landed and set up a camp. So he got back to his camp and sent the message and the next morning the Allied fighter planes came and did it over. However, the Japanese weren't daunted, they got their stores and removed to a new location. So he set off through the jungle and undetected he discovered the new encampment and he reported that and our fighters came back and straffed that as well. So more barges landed, more sites, were made by the Japanese and he discovered them. So over a month, he and his party just undermined these efforts of the enemy. Um, And he was often like only half a mile from them. So it would have been so easy, you would think, for them to spot him, but they didn't. Anyway, so um, they eventually, the Japanese eventually gave up and pulled out. And the bridgehead never eventuated. And so the potential damage to the Allied soldiers was eliminated. But there was another factor as well, Um, at the beachheads the Japanese had built an impenetrable network of bunkers and trenches. And they were well hidden and the Japanese kept them with great tenacity and it took a heavy toll on the Allies, Allies Allied infantry, sorry. (laughs) So they called on the Coast Watchers Paluma ship to help because they needed tanks and heavy artillery to attack these impenetrable bunkers. And they couldn't get them over the Owen Stanley Ranges or fly them in by plane, but they could bring them in by small ships. But there was a catch. The waters between Milne Bay and Boona were full of reefs. And it was uncharted, and the Navy was going to survey it, but that would take months. So Eric was asked if Paluma could lay buoys, and place lights. And he assured general headquarters that Paluma could do that. And with Ivan Champion in in command of a crew of Coast Watchers, Mm. Paluma travelled up the coast at night and moved into inlets in the the day, but sometimes had to be out in the daytime. And each reef was marked with a, a buoy, which a light could be hung on so that they could guide the ships at night. And the Japanese in Buna took no notice. They just thought it was an insignificant vessel bobbing around Until did they realise that it was going to have a significant part in their downfall. Um, and so that made way for the small ships to tarry, carry the heavy artillery up. And in December, Paluma was followed by small ships that sailed up to Oro Bay. And they did this for over a month, night after night, and tanks and field guns were landed at Ora Bay um, and really helping our hard pressed infantry to put an end to the Japanese at Buna.
0: Thank you. Jim, uh, you had some experience along that northern coast New Guinea. I'm just wondering if you can explain to me two things. One, what the environment was like and, and what your experiences were. But I was also wondering if you could reflect a little bit more. Um, We mentioned in the previous episode that a coast-watching organisation was not just the coast-watcher and the radio operator, but also the local people. So as you talk about the north coast of New Guinea and your experiences there, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a bit about the local people as well.
4: Yes, Alistair, um I served uh, at Milne Bay and then forward bases in Nadzab, which was a big uh, US uh, Air Force base. Um, And then uh, uh, up in Madang, where the Australians had landed, uh, there, there and uh, there were forward bases for the for the parties that were in the, already up in the in the Seapik and, and Wewak. Um, I then um, uh, finished there and flew down in a uh, coincidentally a uh, boat and bomber down to Moresby, and then I went by um, seaplane, a U.S. mariner, to uh, the south coast of uh, of New Britain. Um, then up by barge and into the uh, into the uh, uh, jungle environment was always uh, uh, in. Uh, we we had uh, and I'd like to pay homage to some native troops. Not quite the environment, but but they're always with us, doing the thatched uh, shelter and what have you. Uh, Looking up, looking, cooking our food, even uh, a casey, doing a bit of washing, most importantly, climbing the, uh, the tree to put up put up our, our aerial. As I mentioned before, they were one of the essential components of, a, of, a, of the coast watching parties. Um, um, uh, so that uh, pretty well covers the north, my movements in the north coast. But the uh, natives, they were just wonderful. Um, we soon, because we, we lived with them, we soon learnt uh, pidgin English. Time bef- long time before me, stop long place. All equal in him rebel now, man below, long Japan. You come in, now shoot him, and etc. etc. Um, it was sort of a uh, very simple, uh, descriptive. Descriptive language, but we soon learnt that to uh, to communicate with them, they were wonderful. In the end of the week, we'd give them uh, some twisted tobacco, and that was their pay. I'm ashamed to say. So, uh, but um, they were. uh, And I've recently an article which was posted in the Papua New Guinea, uh, 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 talking about the the value of the native native troops. They were our environment. Thank you. John Perryman, the
0: Coast Watching Organisation, had some great characters. Some of them we've already mentioned, but can you tell us a bit about Blue Harris and his fate? Well,
2: Blue Harris, I, I touched on in the uh, the earlier episode of this, this podcast concerning the, the Coast Watchers. And just as a reminder, Blue played a, a fairly significant role in the evacuation of uh, Australian troops from the north coast of New Britain um, following the Japanese incursion. So and he gets them with his... Uh, what would on be the Lakatoi. The, the Lakatoi was the ship, that's right. But he had you know, a collection of motor launchers, a fairly irregular navy. And and this this enigmatic character is the captain of that navy, if you like. So he's a bit larger than life. And as I say, he's a big, fleshy guy with red hair. But he is really driven to be in the fight. So after all of that excitement with getting out of New Britain, okay, he then goes on to uh, see further excitement at the Rye Coast, which is between Medang and uh, Finchhaven in New Guinea, before eventually finding his way back to Queensland at Tabra Uh, camp and that's where he is in 1944 but Blue with his head for adventure he's not a happy camper he wants to get back into it so he's putting his hand up and itching to get back into the fight so of course by this stage of the war we're now firmly on the offensive Um, you know we're we're sort of hopping along the top coast of uh, New Guinea westward Mm -hmm. And uh, the next place that we've got our eyes set on is Hollandia. So Blue is um, selected to lead a party of 11 to go to the Hollandia area, be landed by the United States submarine DACE, go ashore, and start providing some of the vital intelligence necessary, um, which would precipitate the landing at Hollandia. (coughs) So when they go in there, they've they've made this arrangement that uh, Blue Harris will go in first. In, uh, so the submarine will come to the surface, launch a uh, small boat, Blue will go in, and if it's safe for the others to follow, he'll give you know the code word to come on. If he felt that there was any reason that they should not come, he was going to give the code word, washout. And when he got there, he had difficulty in the surf. Um, he got there, he was immediately greeted by islanders, uh, and the bells in the back of Blue's head you know, started to ring. He was alarmed at, you know, how quickly he was noticed. So he did in fact signal washout, but it was too late. The others had left the submarine and the other members of that 11-man party then joined them. They spent that night uh, in the jungle, concealed. They hadn't been compromised at that point. But the next morning, Blue was quite convinced that, uh, you know, they may have been in peril. So they struck inland. Uh, And his instincts, you know, would serve him well because it wasn't long before they became surrounded by uh, elements of the Japanese army. Uh, They were machine gunned shot at with carbines, mortared, and the party was soon split up. So at that point, um, Harris and and two others of his party uh, kept the enemy at bay for four hours before his two colleagues were shot and killed. The remainder of the party had scattered into the jungle and made good their escape. So that they're pretty well now without the supplies, without ammunition, and uh, facing the hardships of the jungle of New Guinea, and and that was the, that was the common enemy here, but uh, sadly, Blue Harris was captured by the Japanese. Um, he'd been, I think, he recognised that he was mortally wounded. Uh, he gave nothing up to them, and in the end, they lost patience uh, with their interrogation. He was put against a tree, and he was bayoneted. Um, posthumously, he was awarded a mentioning dispatches. but uh, it's very, very interesting that um, when the others eventually made it back to safety in, in a terrible state, some of these men who who managed to hook up following the invasion of Hollandia. When they came out of the jungle uh, in this desperate state and, and told the story, uh, which Felt relates in his books. Uh, clearly, you know, Blue Harris was this, this young fellow with a head for adventure, uh, and he sold his life dearly in the end.
4: Thank you. John, do you mind if I just add a bit of personal information there? Okay. I knew Blue very well at Tabra when that, that happened. I was selected to go with him uh, as a radio operator into Hollandia. Um, at the last minute, a previous... Uh, uh, Signaler, uh, Jack Bunning, um, who had dropped out because he was sick, got better at the last minute, so he came back into it. Um, when, as you suggest, when, as you mentioned, the two parties went in and lost everything in the surface that they hadn't seen from the submarine, that's when uh, the, my substitute, Jack Bunning, got killed. So it could have been me, but it wasn't. And, um, yes, uh, I just wanted to add that... uh, No, I'm I'm thrilled that that you
2: did. And, 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 you know, I've described Blue as being a a fairly... uh, uh, ..a a character. Is that how you found him?
4: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. He was a great guy. Apart from the wonderful work he did at the North Coast, uh, he he was just just a character. You, You can't describe him. Uh, I think a red-headed Irishman would be enough. Larger than life. <laughs> he, he wanted wanted a job. He got it. Mm. Unfortunately, yeah. they tortured him and killed him and mm. him at Detroit, mm. while Jack Bunning uh, got killed mm. by a gun ba- in a ba- gun battle. Mm. Thank goodness I wasn't in it. Yeah, thank, thank you both for describing it to us. Peter
0: Jones. As the war moved north into the Philippines, the work of the coast watchers was largely finished. Can you provide us with, I guess, some facts and figures that give a sense of
1: their contribution to the war? Yes. So, um, so we touched on in the previous episode the fact that um, um, their their work in terms of saving the, the members of Black Force, um, then in the Solomons, the fact that they saved. Uh, over 250, possibly up to 300, um, uh, allied aviators, sailors. Um, they also saved um, innumerable numbers of expatriates as they were withdrawn. So, as um, as Coast watchers were withdrawn from islands, they brought with them expatriates. And some some cases, as some that uh, that uh, Betty has talked about, they remained, but they helped facilitate expatriates to to leave so these are really key um, um, uh, contributions the thing that also isn't uh, talked about as much is going back to the solomons where there were almost like these private armies under some of the enterprise and coast watchers who had um, the the solomon islanders as their as their troops if you like um, hundreds of Japanese were killed um, as a result of that, and they um, they frightened small detachments of Japanese from even patrolling. So they were very significant um, contributions in material terms, both in terms of Solomons and also New
3: So just to add that they, after a while, they stopped being Coast Watchers, they became guerrillas. Yes, that's Gorilla right. Fighters. Yeah.
1: And there was some discussion at the time about, uh, hang on, this is within, you know, er, er, Eric and uh, Rupert about, well, you know, is this what we want it to happen? You know, it wasn't what we originally envisaged. Mm. But the circumstances had changed. And in the Solomons, it was, you know, really a... Um, I think the right decision to allow this to occur because they really made
4: significant material impact on the campaign through their work. Just as a minor point, uh, for some reason, the natives in Guadalcanal were called scouts, but they were just the same. Yes, okay. that's right. Mm.
0: John, John Perryman. Rupert Long and Eric Felt worked hard uh, to have the bravery of the Coast Watchers recognised by Australian and US authorities. How successful were they?
2: I think they were very successful. And there's there's a couple of really interesting points that I'd like to make. You know, there was almost 50 decorations variously awarded to the Coast Watchers, which included, you know, Ruby Boy as as the only female. Uh, They also saw that the Islanders were recognised as well with loyalty medals, okay? Somewhat different to the, the imperial system, but you know, recognition was given out quite, you know, generously. But what I would I think the main point to take away from the decorations won by Coast Watchers, it wasn't for a single moment in time where caution was thrown to the wind and a brave act uh, occurred and that's not taking anything away from when that happens. But these men were decorated for months and months and months of bravery in the face of the enemy in some of the most arduous and challenging conditions that one could imagine. So, you know, they did fight hard. Uh, I think both Felt and Long and others saw this group as very, very much a, a family, if you like, of fighting men and women uh, and included in that family, of, of course, were the Islanders. So yes, and I think it was, you know, some of the awards, the highest of which was, a, you know, a commander of St. Michael and St. George, uh, 21 members received mem- uh, mentions in dispatches and distinguished service crosses were, were handed out as were other decorations. Also, uh, the Americans, um, y- you might recall that we've, um, we 've heard previously about Halsey and how he saw the coast watching organization the Americans were also quick to recognize the uh, the efforts of a number of coast watchers
4: Thank you. can I just add that um, the Americans uh, wanted to recognize by medals um, of the uh, including myself the people that uh, worked behind the in uh, enemy territory but uh, it was not backed by the Australians now they did the Australians did do quite a few uh, uh, medals, including, including Natives. So uh, I want to credit that, but um, uh, uh, the, the American ones were knocked back. Anyway, that's beside the point. Thank you.
0: Betty, um, even as the war was being, uh, still being fought, Eric Felt was writing his classic book, The Coast Watchers. Uh, can you explain the impact of the book?
3: Okay, well the book The Coast Watchers was published in 1946 by Oxford University Press Melbourne and a smaller book was published in the same year by Oxford University Press New York. I think the book showed Eric's talent as a writer and it recorded his personal knowledge of the Coast Watchers and the significant events in which they played a part. His descriptive prose and his candid opinions and his lively sense of humour make the book a most readable story. Um, But perhaps one thing he did was downplay the importance of his own role uh, and the demands it placed on him. Um, But he was a relatively quiet and modest man, I believe, and it was just in his nature to do so. Um, The Australian newspapers at the time, the reviews were positive with many... Going in their praises, here are a couple. The Argus in Melbourne said, it has a dramatic suspense of a hundred adventure stories. This is one of the great untold stories of the war. The advertiser in Adelaide said, these men helped save Australia. This fine book dealing with so vital and nearly tragic period of our history, well written, should be read with pride by all Australians. And the mirror in Perth said, unsung Australian heroes defied outwitted Japs. Here is a story of Australians who deserve to live in the memory of their fellows. Every school boy and girl should read it and marvel that the moment found such men. Um, The impact at the time obviously hasn't lasted with the passage of time, because in my experience, hardly any Australians know about the Coast Watchers and even fewer know about Eric Felt. It seems the only people who do know are those who have lived in Papua New Guinea, members of the military and some historians.
4: uh, His book became the Bible, uh, written with meticulous detail. And interesting that uh, after he took ill and stopped writing in uh, Uh, October, uh, subsequently, uh, he listed another addendum of uh, several several pages to wrap up the story. That's a great book. I got an original. Thank you both. Got it for me mum. (laughs) Peter,
0: Rupert Long, ever the organiser, wanted a permanent memorial to the sacrifice of the Coast Watchers. What ended up materialising?
1: So in 1948, uh, Rupert Long suggested to Gordon Laycock, who was the director of lighthouses in New Guinea, that one of the new lighthouses, which were being built along the coast after the war, should be uh, built from a public subscription um, as an enduring memorial to the Coast Watchers. So in typical Rupert Long fashion, he had established a Coast Watchers Memorial Committee. He had some of his team, um, like Brooksbank and and other people that had worked for him for many years, they populated the committee and they did the work under the broad sweep of Rupert's direction. Um, They were very effective. Uh, Madang was uh, selected as the site, which was uh, very appropriate because of uh, uh, how Madang figured both in Eric Felt's life as a in the interwar period, but also in terms of um, the the contribution of the Coast Watchers in that area. Um, The donations were large and small. They came from Australia, New Zealand, uh, UK, and also America. Uh, Some of the nation, key donators were Admiral Halsey, uh, Vice President Richard Nixon, who had served in Guadalcanal area as a young officer. Um, Construction of the futuristic looking um, lighthouse looks a bit like a a, a rocket Um, and um, it got underway in early 1959 and it was unveiled on the 15th of August that year. Uh, The event also served as one only reunion of the Coast Watchers. Um, Rupert had organised a a, a RAAF aircraft to ferry uh, key VIPs, uh, key people from the intelligence world and Coast Watchers from Australia. The US Naval Attaché in Canberra, who at that time had an aircraft, he had served in Guadalcanal as an aviator. He provided his aircraft to ferry people. Um, And also there were many expatriates from, and 40 native Coast Watchers from the highlands and uh, mainland New Guinea, and also the outlying islands, descended on Medang uh, for that weekend. The lighthouse was switched on 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 that evening uh, of the 15th of August by Senator John Gordon, who was minister for the Navy at the time. Um, Eric Felt gave a very moving speech. And that night, a reunion was held at Hotel Medang. Medang. Um, In fact, one of the coast watchers foresaw the, what the events that night would be and that, the, that dead Japs would lie three feet high in the, around the bar in Medang uh, Hotel, um, with all the stories. One coast watcher called them the reunion of Eric Felt's gang. And another said that evening was uh, so fantastic, we never thought we would see each other again. And um, Jim's point about the, how the Coast Watcher team was the radio operator, the Coast Watcher, and the um, and the, the, the Native support team. Uh, many of those small teams were reunited on that weekend for the first and only time.
0: Thank you very much, Peter. Jim, you are unfortunately unable to attend the opening, but you have made a subsequent pilgrimage to the memorial light. What are your feelings?
4: It's interesting I was never, Telling about that otherwise I might have been been there but uh, coincidentally um, on a cruise uh, my wife and I did uh, up to Japan and back uh, we called in at Guam and then next stop is Medang where I was for six months anyway on a, on O Island just across from where the but I took the opportunity to to go up and see the uh, the light, lighthouse and uh, I was very impressed I uh, had a little quiet moment um, uh, thinking about poor old Blue and, and Jack Bunning, and on the side thinking, I'm glad it wasn't me. But um, it's very uh, interesting to see 38 uh, names of uh, uh, Coast Watchers that didn't make it. 38 out of about 400 uh, represents uh, just, uh, if you like, a a fairly small percentage, but um, bearing in mind our uh, strict mandate, as Betty pointed out before, was not to confront the enemy, just to keep and hide and spy on the enemy and report movements. Um, uh, They're the ones that unfortunately got caught, including one of those six... uh, Carlson. There's Carlson who was uh, captured and killed with uh, John uh, Murphy when he was captured in, in New Britain. So one of the six of us uh, got killed as well, yeah. Um, so that's just an aside that uh, uh, Blue and uh, the other names were enshrined in that uh, nice memorial. Thank you. To
0: conclude this remarkable story, I'd like to give each speaker a chance uh, to give their final thoughts about the Coast Watchers. And I think given um, that we're talking about Coast Watchers, Jim Burrows, it's only natural that we would turn to you first.
4: Thanks, Alistair. I appreciate that. I might have mentioned the previous one, but uh, it's important... uh, um, what I've said uh, you know at my at 96 uh, my mission now is to let uh, all the people know in Australia the importance the main the main article I've written in my website was how the coast watchers turned the tide of the Pacific War that was so significant it's hard to un- understand but I, um, I want everyone, everyone to, to know that and uh Generally speaking, um, if anyone's interested, if they just think of TLC as a, as a code word, but then that stands for the last Coast Watcher, no spaces, go to Google, put that in, you'll find that article. Of all the articles I've done, probably about 20, that is the most important. That's the, the key one uh, of, the, uh, of the Coast Watchers feats that I uh, want everyone to know about. Uh, not to mention, of course, the uh, uh, the the famous saying by Bull uh, Horsley, how the Coast Watchers saved. Uh, so, um, that's my session. Thanks very much, um, Alistair and, and fellow interviewees. Uh, for, I've enjoyed uh, reminiscing these occasions. Thank you very much and all the best.
0: Thank you very much, Jim. And look, say for everybody, it's it's uh, it's the last Coast Watcher. If you search for that um, online, you'll, you'll, you'll find Jim's website, which is excellent. Um, and we'll certainly see what we can do to link to it um, to, to uh, let people know. Yeah, Betty. appreciate that.
3: Okay, well, I full-heartedly support Jim's goal to have the Coast Watchers more recognised and more known about them and the important role They played, and I think it would be really wonderful if we could have a memorial to the Coast Watchers here in Australia. It's fine to have one in Papua New Guinea, but how many Australians go there? Whereas so many people come here to the Australian War Memorial. I just think a dedicated memorial to the Coast Watchers would be very nice.
0: Thank you. John?
2: Well, I think that uh, the coast-watching story is, is, it stands out in in the annals of the Australian Navy's history. Uh, It was important at the time. uh, When one looks at the geographic uh, picture to our north, where we have New Guinea, New Britain, New Ireland, the Solomons, the New Hebrides, uh, one wonders today whether in the future there might be a need for a similar organisation, notwithstanding the fact that we, we have other means of uh, intelligence collecting now. But uh, eyes on the ground, I think, uh, prove that it worked exceptionally well. Uh, these are our nearest neighbours. They're our friends. Uh, who knows? Some food for thought.
1: Peter Jones. Um, at the base of the Coastwatch Memorial Lighthouse is, is inscribed a poem. And it ends with the words, they waited and warned and died that we might live. Um, And I think that sums up the role and the contribution and the sacrifice of the Coast Watchers. They were truly the bravest of the brave.
0: Regrettably, that is all we have time for, uh, for this episode. I'd like to thank John Perryman, Peter Jones, Betty Lee, and particularly Jim Burrows, um, the last Coast Watcher. Thank you all for joining us. And for more great Australian naval history, just search for Naval Studies Group wherever you found this podcast. Goodbye for now.